بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله This is lesson 84, correct? Alhamdulillah. So we are in the month of Ar-Rabi'ul Awwal, not now, but in the seerah. We are in the month of Ar-Rabi'ul Awwal in the fourth year after the Hijrah. And according to one opinion, we're actually in the month of Shawwal in the fourth year after the Hijrah. There's a bit of discrepancy. But the sounder view is that it was Ar-Rabi' al-Awwal in the fourth year after the Hijrah where another major event happened in the life of the Prophet Wasallam. And today we're going to talk about that incident. I was going to talk about two incidents today. Uh, the expulsion of Banu Nadir or the Ghazwa of Banu Nadir and the prohibition of alcohol. But we're going to put the prohibition of alcohol for next week, insha'Allah. And just look at the ghazwa of Banu Nadir. This was a major incident because it, have, it had uh, after effects leading to the battle of Ahzab. Now we know that when the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, there were three Jewish tribes. There was Banu Qaynuqa', Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraydha. We spoke already about how Banu Qaynuqa' violated their treaty, and as a result, they were expelled from Medina. That leaves us with two Jewish tribes in Medina now, Banu Nadir and Banu, Banu Quraydha. Today we talk about how Banu Nadir were also expelled from Medina, leaving just one Jewish tribe, Banu Quraydha, who will face consequences for their violations and uh, breaking of the treaty in the fifth year of the Hijrah. So that's coming soon as well. So to understand this incident, we actually have to go back to the early uh, Hijrah when the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina and began to establish this society with a new political norm. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, shortly after that, according to the soundest view, he established a mithaq. And we talked at length about this mithaq, this covenant, this political arrangement, this treaty, if you will, or agreement between the Prophet ﷺ, uh, the Aws and the Khazraj, and the three Jewish tribes of Medina. Now everyone agreed to the terms of this mithaq. All three of the Jewish tribes agreed to the terms of the mithaq of Medina. And one of those terms was that the Jewish tribes agreed to contribute financially in the event that any of them had to pay diya or blood money for manslaughter. That was one of the terms in the covenant. I mean, the other terms we know, that they would not give material support 
to the enemies of the Prophet But we're looking at this particular term right now. The agreement is that uh, in this tribal arrangement, if person A killed person B and had to pay diya, the tribes and all the signatories to this agreement would contribute based on whatever arrangement they make to help pay for uh, a portion of that diya. And they agreed to this. Now remember last week, when we were talking about the massacre that happened at Bir Ma'una, when 70 of the Sahaba were killed, minus, minus three, you have, actually two, you have Zayd ibn Ka'b who survived, who was later killed at the Battle of Khandaq, and then you had Amr bin Umayyah, who was captured by Amr bin Tufayl, and then released uh, to fulfill the uh, pledge that his mother took to free a slave. So Amr bin Tufayl's mother took this oath that she would free a slave, and so he has Amr bin Umayyah captured virtually as a slave, so he frees him, sending him back to Medina to fulfill his mother's oath. So remember that story, the story we ended on. When Amr bin Umayyah returned to Medina, he was on the outskirts of the city, and there he was resting by a tree, and he encountered two men. Where are these two men from? What tribe do they belong to? Banu Amir. These are the people who massacred the Sahaba at Bir Ma'una. These two men were not involved in that, but they're from that tribe. So when Amr bin Umayyah started talking to them, and they introduced themselves and identified themselves as people of Banu Amr, he waited for them to fall asleep. When they fell asleep, he thought that he was avenging the murder of his friend Mundir ibn Muhammad radiallahu anhu. And so he killed these two men in, in their sleep. Now undoubtedly this was wrong. This was sinful because these two individuals, number one, they weren't involved. Number two, those two men of Banu Amr had uh, a man. They had a guarantee of security, a guarantee of protection from none other than the Prophet When Amr got back to Medina, he met the Prophet and told him what happened. And the Prophet said, it's an awful thing that you have done. They had a man from me, a guarantee of security and protection. He said, I will pay their diya, their blood money. This is in Ibn Hisham's seerah. So the Prophet is now taking it upon himself to pay the blood money of these two men of Banu Amr. How much is blood money for a single person? A hundred camels. That, mean, that means 200 camels have to be paid as diya for the killing of these two men of Banu Amr. That is an enormous sum of money, now and back then. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to speak with the chieftains of Banu Nadir about them fulfilling that part of the agreement they made early on in the Mithaq to contribute to the payment of diya in the case of manslaughter. And that is what led to the Ghazwa of Banu Nadir and their expulsion. So we have to understand that there's a background 
there's background problems, there's background tensions between the Muslim community and Banu Nadir even before this happened. We find a very interesting narration, for instance, in the Musannaf of Abdul Razak, the Sanani, a great hadith compiler. In his Musannaf, he mentions a narration that some people from Banu Nadir actually conspired to kill some of the people of Ahlul Sufa, those Muslims who were living inside of the masjid. But Allah Ta'ala willed that they shared their plot with someone and so that person told some of the Muslims and basically the plot was thwarted, nothing happened. But that was still a violation of the treaty. In the Maghazi of Musa ibn Uqba, uh, this is actually the earliest Maghazi collection written and very interestingly, uh, quite a, a nice coincidence we have because that Maghazi of Musa bin Uqba, the earliest Maghazi collection written, was lost from around the year 436 after Hijrah until recently. It was actually rediscovered because these manuscripts stay with families, they get put into museums, they end up in large collections, and no one finds them until they dig and locate them. Now, it's been reproduced by indifferent Sira works. Imam Ibn Kathir, for instance, he, he mentioned several quotes from the Maghazi of Musa bin Uqba. But the whole Maghazi collection of Musa bin Uqba was recently rediscovered. And it was published in three volumes and released just this week. Just this week. And everyone is now scrambling to get their hands on it because it is by all accounts, the earliest Sira work ever written. So in that work, which we have excerpts from in some of the other Sira works in a scattered way, we have a narration from him, which mentions that a narration that Banu Nadir helped Quraysh during the Battle of Uhud. They actually helped Quraysh during the Battle of Uhud, giving them logistics, and knowledge about the lay of the land, where they can position this group and that group, and where are the hills and where are the blind spots. Their knowledge of the area, uh, they gave that information to some of Quraysh before the Battle of Uhud. That is a violation of the treaty, right? Because they are assisting Quraysh against the Prophet If you go back several lessons, You'll remember we told the story of the assassination of Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf who was compiling the hijab poetry attacking the Prophet ﷺ and the Ummahatul Mu'mineen. Now remember that he was half Arab and half Jew. His mother was Jewish. What tribe did he belong to? Banu Nadir. So we have that incident. So you see these tensions are already there from before. Uh, but despite all of this happening, there was never a formal announcement of the treaty having been broken. At least not yet. But it's going to happen now. So the Prophet ﷺ went along with Sayyiduna Abu Bakr and Umar. And in one narration it says a larger group of Sahaba from Muhajirun and Ansar. They all went to the south, where Banu Nadir is located. 
in order to discuss the details about contributing to the payment of the dia. So they get there, and remember we talked about how Banu Nadir was very wealthy and how they were deeply involved in agriculture. And we also talked about how these Jewish tribes would build large fortresses, large compounds, walled compounds. And this was a defensive tactic. They could go inside with lots of supplies, food and water, and they could basically live there and no enemy could get inside. So remember in the story of the killing of Ka'b ibn Ashraf how they had to make a ploy to even get inside. And now the Prophet Wasallam, along with a group of Muslims, is going to the south to Banu Nadir in order to meet with them. And they come out to welcome them. They're still outside of the compound. They haven't been let in yet. So one of the Jewish people come out of the compound and they say, Ah, it's about time you've come to ask for our help. Another narration says that one of the chiefs of Banu Nadir said, Ya Abal Qasim, we will help you in that which pleases you. So sit here and we'll offer you some food and you can return with your need fulfilled and we'll discuss and settle our affairs. So you have to understand the setting here. They are making a show of hosting him. If he comes and he's outside of the compound and they want to host him, obviously the food isn't necessarily ready. So they're telling him, you know, just wait, we're going to prepare things, set things up, we're going to host you. Just give us some time. So the Prophet ﷺ is outside of the compound with the Sahaba waiting for them as they are ostensibly preparing food and getting things ready for the negotiation of how they will contribute to the diya for those two men of Banu Amr that were killed. So while the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Bakr, Umar, and some of the Muhajirun and Ansar were all outside of the compound, the leaders of Banu Nadir were inside discussing what they're going to do. How are we going to do this? One of them said, this is the best opportunity we have to get him. He's sitting outside of our fortress. All we have to do is throw a large rock over him as he's sitting outside of the fortress and we'll crush him. So they're already discussing how they're going to violate the treaty even further by assassinating the Prophet Another individual from Banu Nadir did not like this idea whatsoever and said that this would be too obvious and as a result of this, the Muslims are going to come back and respond in force. So as the Prophet is sitting outside of the compound with the Muslims, suddenly, as they're waiting, the Prophet ﷺ stands up quickly and he leaves. And in one narration, it says that it appeared that he was going off at some distance in order to answer the call of nature. Totally normal. There's no, there's no bathroom facilities in Medina. There, it's just the khala, it's just the outdoors. So he appears to stand up suddenly and go off as if to answer the call of nature. So the Sahaba remained waiting outside the compound. They didn't think anything of this. But as time went by, because they're waiting longer and longer, he's not coming back. So if he was truly going to answer the call of nature, he would have been back by now. 
So now they become a bit alarmed. And so they get up and they decide they're going to go leave and go look for the Prophet Just as they were getting ready to leave, one of the Jews of Banu Nadir, one of their chiefs, Huyay ibn Akhtab, he said, Abu Qasim left us in a rush. Oh, we wanted to fulfill his request. What's the problem? They want to know what's going on too. So as the Sahaba left and they're making their way back to Medina, they encountered a man from the Muslims who had just left Medina. So he's on the outskirts just as they are. They're kind of meeting halfway. And they asked him about the Prophet and the man says, I met him going towards Medina. So he went all the way back to the city. He didn't go to relieve himself. He went straight back to the city. So now the Muslims are back in the city too. Nothing came of it. No negotiations took place. And it said in the Sirah works that after they left, the Jews of Banu Nadir began to regret what happened. Because in their mind, they left because they figured out what was going on. They figured out that it was a ploy and that they wanted to use that opportunity to attempt to assassinate the Prophet So one of the people of Kinana who was with them, he said, do you know why Muhammad got up and left so quickly? They said, by Allah, we don't know, and you don't know either. But this man of Kinana said, no, by Allah, he was informed of your plans, and he was told of your treachery. Don't fool yourselves, for by Allah, he is the messenger of Allah. So this is a person who recognizes that. The reason why the Prophet ﷺ left is because of inspiration. And indeed, one narration mentions that it was the angel Jibreel who told him of their plot, at which point he got up and left straight away. So when the Muslims who were accompanying the Prophet ﷺ made their way back to Medina, they met up with him again. And then the Prophet ﷺ told them of the treachery of Banu Nadir. In their minds, it wasn't clear. They were outside waiting and all of a sudden he's gone. They get suspicious, they worry about him, they find him back in Medina. And he tells them the reason why he left is because of the treachery of Banu Nadir. This is what they were planning. Now what's interesting in the Quranic narrative is that, as we've said before, the Quran is the very first seerah in that sense. And this incident is mentioned by Allah Ta'ala in the Qur'an. It was revealed four years after this event. And Surah Al-Hashar is the chapter that talks about this incident. And in Surah Al-Hashar, actually this is different. Uh, in this verse, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أُذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ هَمَّ قَوْمٌ أَنْ يَبْصُطُوا إِلَيْكُمْ أَيْدِيَهُمْ O you who believe, remember the favor of Allah upon you when a people sought to harm you, but he held their hands back from you. Be mindful of Allah and in Allah let the believers put their trust. So Allah Ta'ala reveals in this verse 
that they should remember the favor of Allah when Allah prevented Banu Nadir from carrying out this attempted assassination. So this is actually what led up to the ghazwa of Banu Nadir or the expulsion of Banu Nadir. This is the reason, the main reason mentioned in the works of Sirah. Now, some of the works of Sirah mention other reasons. And when you put them all together, you see clear reasons in the plural for why this ghazwa took place. And, uh, some of the Sirah works mention that the immediate cause of this ghazwa was because Banu Nadir had conspired with Quraysh. Uh, and Quraysh had written a letter to Banu Nadir threatening them that if they don't assist Quraysh against the Prophet and the Muslims, that they will attack them as well. There's one narration which mentions this. And then you have this narration which mentions them trying to lure the Prophet and assassinate him. At any rate, at this stage, they have showed their hand. They have demonstrated their intentions, and this violates the treaty. But when you look at everything that took place before this, you see that they violated the treaty on multiple occasions. One of them would have been enough for the Prophet ﷺ to do as he did. We have five clear violations of the treaty between them and the Prophet ﷺ. We have the narration from the Musannaf of Abdul Razak in which it mentions that some of the people of Banu Nadir tried to kill some of the Muslims of Ahlul Sufa. That's a violation of the treaty. We have the narration from Musa bin Uqba in his Maghazi about how Quraysh helped, about how Banu Nadir helped Quraysh with logistics. That is a violation of the treaty. And if you go back further in the seerah, we discuss the Ghazwa of Sawiq. You'll remember this Ghazwa that happened after Badr, when Abu Sufyan took a vow that he would not wash or apply perfume until he gets revenge for what they suffered at Badr. When he made his way north to carry out this, this vow, he came with 200 riders and he kept moving by night until he reached Banu Nadir. When they reached Banu Nadir, Salam ibn Mishkam, the chief of Banu Nadir, entertained Abu Sufyan, gave him food and drink, and gave him supplies and things for their attack. That is material support. And that, too, is a violation of the treaty. We have the narration of them conspiring with Quraysh when Quraysh threatened them. That is a violation of the treaty. And now, as the Prophet ﷺ goes to negotiate the payment of blood money, they attempt to assassinate him. That is a violation of the treaty. Just one of these would have been enough. But we have five causes for this ghazwa. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ goes back to Medina. He tells the companions what had happened. At this stage, the Prophet ﷺ sends a message to Banu Nadir through Muhammad ibn Maslama. And the reason why he's sending the message is because Banu Nadir had a long-standing alliance with the Aus. And Muhammad bin Maslama is from the Aus. So he's familiar. They know him very well. They've had a relationship with him for several years. 
So he is the one who receives this message to deliver from the Prophet ﷺ to Banu Nadir. He goes to Banu Nadir's tribal area and delivers this letter. What does it say? It says, from the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, leave my land and do not stay with me here after having intended betrayal, ghadr. I have given you 10 days and whoever is seen after that will be struck down. Now listen to that. Pay attention to the language here. The Prophet ﷺ is telling Banu Nadir, my land, my land. Not just the area where the Aus live, not just where the Khazraj are, but the whole area. He says, leave my land and do not stay with me here after having intended betrayal. So he is essentially telling them now that he is the ruler of Medina. It's not a collection of different tribal chiefs all negotiating with each other. No, he is the leader. He is not negotiating among equals. He is the superior. He is the leader. This is his land. Now, what's so interesting about this story is that if you think about all the things they did, the attempted assassination of Muslims from Ahl al-Sufa, giving logistical support to Quraysh, right? attempting to assassinate him while he's waiting outside of the compound. All of these very clear violations of the treaty. Yet when they get this letter from Muhammad ibn Maslama, they, they weren't expecting it. They acted shocked and surprised. They could not imagine that they would get such a letter. Can you imagine this? The gall of them to commit one violation after the other and then act surprised when they have to face consequences. Naam, there's a word for this. Chutzpah. You know, that's the word that they use. You know, you, you do one thing after the other, and then when the person responds in a just manner, you act surprised. That's how they responded. They were shocked that they got this letter. So Muhammad bin Aslama, who's from the Aus, this longtime ally with Banu Nadir, uh, was, he, re, he reported this. He said that they said to him, we didn't expect this to come from a man of the Aus, meaning we have history. You know, we get, we get along with each other. How can this letter come from one of you? And then Muhammad bin Maslama said, hearts have changed and Islam has nullified the ancient alliances. Hearts have changed. So the Sirah works mention that after this letter was received, they were given 10 days, right? The Sirah works mentioned that they spent the next few days preparing for their departure. There's some discrepancy here. Because some narrations mention they actually sent out to go get some camels from others to load their supplies and to leave. And then other narrations mention that they decided to keep themselves inside of the compound and refuse. But we see that there's internal disagreements. There's disunity in their own ranks. Some want to leave and others want to stay. So they got this news and they were shocked. When the news spread, and the munafiqun found out 
who was the old ally of Banu Nadir? Abdullah ibn Ubay. Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul is an old ally of Banu Nadir. When he finds out what is happening to his old allies, he sends them a message too. In his message, he tells Banu Nadir that he will support them. He says, and I quote, We are with you in life and death. If you are fought in a battle, we will come to your aid. And if you are exiled, we will leave with you and not remain here after you. It's tough talk. He's saying, we'll fight with you. If, if you die, we die. And if you decide to leave, we're going to go with you. Because we are allies. This was the letter of Abdullah ibn Ubay, giving Banu Nadir some hope that maybe they can mount up a resistance and fight this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the plot and intentions of Abdullah ibn Ubay. In Surah Al-Hashar, Allah ta'ala mentions this. أَلَمْ تَرَى إِلَى الَّذِينَ نَافَقُوا يَقُولُونَ لِإِخْوَانِهِمْ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ لَإِنْ أُخْرِجْتُمْ لَنَخْرُجَنَّ مَعَكُمْ وَلَا نُطِيعُ فِيكُمْ أَحَدًا أَبَدًا وَإِنْ قُلْتِلْتُمْ لَنَنْصُرَنَّكُمْ وَاللَّهُ يَشْهَدُ إِنَّهُمْ لَكَاذِبُونَ So Allah Ta'ala says, Have you not seen the hypocrites who say to their fellow disbelievers from the people of the book, Banu Nadir, if you are expelled, we will certainly leave with you and we will never obey anyone against you. And if you are fought against, we will surely help you. There's all these forms of emphasis in the language. Right? You have the, the lamb of emphasis and you have nunatawkeed al-thaqila. Two double, two forms of emphasis. We will most surely support you and give you aid. What does Allah say? Allah bears witness that they are truly liars. They weren't truthful. He wasn't telling the truth here. But he dragged them into this, as you'll see. So he sends them a letter. And it says, refuse to leave and gather in your forts, for I have 2,000 of my people and others among the Arabs who are willing to stay with you inside of your forts and fight until the death while you wait for help from Banu Quraidah and their allies of Banu Ghatafan. Some big promises here. He, his people, 2,000 strong. Eventually, he says, Banu Quraidah is going to come help. And then the allies of Banu Quraidah, the Banu Ghatafan, they're going to come help. It will be an overwhelming force defending you. So don't leave. Stay inside your forts. We're coming to help. Big promises given by the chief of the Munafiqun, Abdullah ibn Ubay. But Banu Nadir, they make a fatal mistake. What is that fatal mistake? They believed him. That's the one fatal mistake. They believed him. They trusted Abdullah ibn Ubay, and because of this promise of his, they became even more arrogant than before. Because now they think we have guaranteed support. We got 2,000 from them, and we have Banu Quraylah, he says they're going to come. And then Banu Ghatufan, their allies are going to come too. We got this. We're not going anywhere. We're going to fight. 
all because they believed this liar. That was their fatal mistake. And we know these are false promises because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Wallahu yashhadu innahum lakadhibun. Allah bears witness that they are surely liars. When they get this message from Abdullah bin Ubay, they begin to discuss among themselves what they're going to do. Huyay ibn Akhtab, who is one of the major chiefs of Banu Nadir, he sent a message to the Prophet ﷺ after getting the message from Abdullah bin Ubay. In his message to the Prophet ﷺ, he said, we are not leaving our homes, and if you fight us, we will fight you. So do as you wish. Proceed accordingly. That was the letter he sent to the Prophet The Seerah works mentioned that when that letter arrived, and it was read to the Prophet he uttered a very loud takbir, Allahu Akbar. The Jews have declared war. Now the Muslims know that it's time to confront these people for their repeated violations. Meanwhile, back in the forts of Banu Nadir, there's dissension brewing in the ranks. Not everyone was on board with this idea of mounting a defense and fighting the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims. Some of them didn't like this idea, and they began to argue back and forth. Some saying, no, no, this is not going to work. We can't rely on that. We just have to leave. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also revealed the inner dissension in the ranks of Banu Nadir. In Surah Al-Hashar, Allah Ta'ala says, لَا يُقَاتِلُونَكُمْ جَمِيعًا إِلَّا فِي قُرًا مُحَصَّنًا أَوْ مِنْ وَرَاءِ جُدُرٍ بَأْسُهُمْ بَيْنَهُمْ شَدِيدٌ تَحْسَبُهُمْ جَمِيعًا وَقُلُوبُهُمْ شَتَّى ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ قَوْمٌ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ Even united, Allah says, they would not dare fight against you except from within fortified strongholds or from behind walls. Their malice between them, between each other, is intense. You think they are united, yet their hearts are divided. That is because they are a people with no real understanding. So Allah Ta'ala reveals the internal dissension in the ranks of Banu Nadir. So the same day as the letter, the Prophet ﷺ gathers Muslims, tells them to prepare. They gather their weapons and their armor, and he takes a large group. Some accounts in the seerah mention it was about 700 of the Muslims. And within the same day, they all marched to the fortress and began to lay siege. This is siege warfare. Banu Nadir are held up inside of their fortresses and the Muslim forces are outside. The Prophet ﷺ left Abdullah ibn Umm Maktum as Imam of Medina leading there while he was gone. And on the way to Banu Nadir, he gave the liwa to the one Sahabi who carried the Prophet's liwa in virtually every single battle. Right, you have the liwa of the Aus and the Khazraj, but who is the one carrying the liwa for the Prophet ﷺ on most of the battles? Sayyiduna Ali, karramallahu wajha, he's carrying the liwa. So they get to the fort, 
and they lay siege to it. And as they were there, and the, the Sira account says it was between seven days up to 14 or 10, there's discrepancies. While they were there laying siege to the fort, or the forts in the plural, the Prophet ﷺ gave a command to some of the Muslims to cut down a number of the date palm trees belonging to Banu Nadir and to burn them. This was their source of prosperity. They were an agricultural people. So he ordered these date palm trees to be cut down and burnt. Now the Jews, like others, recognized that this was something out of the ordinary. Because the Prophet wasallam uh, did not normally allow for destruction of property in these events. So some of the Jews cried out from inside of the fort, O oh Muhammad, you used to forbid destruction, but now you cut down and burn our palm trees. Allah Ta'ala also revealed a verse of Qur'an concerning this in Surah Al-Hashr. He says, مَا قَطَعْتُم مِّن لِينَةٍ أَوْ تَرَكْتُمُوهَا قَائِمَةً عَلَىٰ أُصُولِهَا فَبِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَلِيُخْزِيَ الْفَاسِقِينَ Whatever date palm trees you cut down, meaning the believers, or leave intact, it was all by the will of Allah so that he might disgrace the fasiqeen, these corrupt people. And this is one of the indications in the Qur'an that the Qur'an is not the sole source of revelation. The Qur'an is the wahi of Allah, but other forms of wahi include the wahi given to the Prophet ﷺ directly. So the sunnah is a, is a communication of that wahi as well. So there's nothing in the Qur'an that mentions the permission to cut the date palm trees, but the verse affirms that permission was granted from Allah Ta'ala to the Prophet Sallallahu So this is not in the Qur'an, but it establishes another source. And that's why we say the sunnah is a kind of wahi as well. So these were cut down. It was an economic attack on their means of prosperity. So they're held up inside of this compound or these compounds and it's a siege warfare, so there's no actual fighting going on. They have two choices here. And this is, the, this is true for all forms of siege warfare. If you are inside of a castle or a fort, and you have the gate shut, and the enemy is outside of the gate, and they're waiting for you, you have two choices. Well, you have three maybe. Choice number one, you can open the gates and fight them. Choice number two, you can surrender. Choice number three, you can remain inside and wait until your supplies run out or until they leave. There's a few different options, but the chance of you succeeding in opening those gates and fighting them is very slim. So they're waiting inside, but they're waiting for something. What are they waiting for? They're waiting for the promises made by Abdullah bin Ubay. Where are these 2,000 men? Where is Banu Quraidah? Where is their allies of Banu Ghatafan? Did any of those people come? Did Abdullah bin Ubay himself come? No. Not a single one of them came. 
It was all a lie. And Allah Ta'ala confirms that in the Qur'an. Allah confirms that they are indeed liars. So this was siege warfare. Now, Imam al-Waqidi, in his Maghazi, he narrates that shortly before this siege, Banu Nadir had gathered enough supplies inside of their forts to last them for a year. Think about that. It's a lot of food. It's a lot of water. They gathered enough to last them for a year. Other narrations seem to contradict that. Some narrations say that they were packing and sending for camels to bring in and load their things, preparing for exile. There is some discrepancy here. But we understand there was dissension in the ranks. Some wanted to leave and others wanted to stay. Ultimately, the chief said, we're going to stay and fight. So here, their position inside of their forts with enough food and water to last them for a year. So why did this only last for seven to ten days and not a year? Well, the Sira works mention that they did attempt to fight by throwing stones on occasion from the walls, hoping to hit some of the Muslims. And at other times, they would fire arrows from atop the forts trying to hit the Muslims. Uh, one narration says that they almost hit some Muslims to the point that the Prophet ﷺ decided to move his tent further back away from the effective range of fire. One narration says that during one of the nights of the siege, they managed to slip out, a small group of them managed to slip out from their compound to try and engage in a sneak attack against the Muslims. But the Muslims were prepared and no one suffered any casualties, but the men of Banu Nadir that came out were all struck down in that attempted attack. So. You have to understand siege warfare. Imagine if you have an enemy force outside of a compound and the group inside of the compound have enough supplies to last them for a year. Would that be effective? Probably. If the enemy had far fewer supplies, did not have a supply chain, and if they're very, very far from home. But where are the Muslims? Everything is here. You could just walk back to Medina. It's not even a day's walk. You just walk back. So there was no problem with the Muslims getting their own supplies. They could literally go back and, go back and forth and just wait it out. There was, no, there was no problem. There's no threat of losing supplies. So they could be there indefinitely. Meanwhile, Banu Nadir can only stay up to a year, if even that. So the Muslims were in no danger, but Banu Nadir was definitely held up. And to illustrate to you the freedom of movement that the Muslims had during this siege, in the Sirah ibn Hisham and others, it mentions that as the Muslims, 700 deep, were laying siege to the forts of Banu Nadir, the Prophet ﷺ and a group of the Muslims there actually left. And they went to the tribal areas of Banu Urayza, the other Jewish tribe. Why did they go there? They went there to renegotiate the terms of the Mithaq and to, to get a guarantee that they're going to follow through with this agreement. So he went there 
and added some more terms and negotiated more terms and got a recommitment on their part to abide by the terms of the treaty. So he's giving them multiple chances and we'll see what comes of that in the fifth year after the Hijrah. So after seven to 10 days or seven to 15 days, there's a difference of opinion. Banu Nadir realized that this is a lost cause, that the Muslims can stay here indefinitely and we cannot. So we might as well just surrender. No help is coming. Abdullah bin Ubay lied. There's no 2,000 men from his side. Banu Qurayla is not coming to help. They just ratified the treaty. So they're definitely not coming. Banu Ghatufan's out. They're not coming. So what are we doing? So they decided to unconditionally surrender. And that was it. They said, we give up. We surrender and we will leave your land. The Prophet ﷺ said, I will no longer accept from you the terms previously offered, but you can depart with your lives and whatever your camels can carry, leaving your weapons behind. So they agreed to this. And after seven to ten days, when they agreed to this surrender, they started to gather their belongings, pack their things, leaving their weapons, of course, but taking as much as they could. And the Prophet ﷺ, just like with Banu Qaynuqa, he appointed a Sahabi to oversee their departure. Who was the Sahabi he appointed to oversee the departure? The same one who sent the letter, Muhammad ibn Maslama. He was in charge of making sure that they got all their things together, they didn't try any tricks, and that they leave their weapons behind. And this was, alhamdulillah, this is a very generous allowance from the Prophet ﷺ, despite their multiple violations and attempted assassinations. He allowed them to leave unharmed with their belongings, whatever they could carry, except for their weapons. So here's where the story gets interesting. Banu Nadir knows that they have to get their things and go. And they're spending this time packing all their belongings and gathering what they can. And as they're putting their stuff together, they realized that when we leave, all that we leave behind is going to belong to the Muslims here. They're going to take everything that we leave behind. And so out of their hatred and spite for the Muslims, many of them began to take axes and break their doors and break their wind, break everything they could that they couldn't take with them and destroy it just to spite the Muslims so no one else can take benefit from it. Right? And the Quran mentions this too. In Surah Al-Hajr, Allah Ta'ala says, Surah Al-Hashr, Allah says, Right? Allah also mentions that they demolished their homes with their own hands. And he says, they tasted the evil consequences of their actions and they will suffer a painful punishment. So they're destroying their own belongings that they can't take with them just to spite the Muslims. Ibn Ishaq, in his seerah, he mentions that as they had packed all their things and were heading out into exile, many of the people of Medina from the Muslims went out to watch this large procession. Imagine 
hundreds of people, men, women, children, on multiple camels. But they're not the ones riding the camels, by the way. The camel, no one is on a camel. They're all walking because the camels are loaded with their own goods. So the Muslims are watching this massive procession of people leaving on foot as they carry their camels loaded with things. And now for the very first time, these Muslims are seeing all of the great wealth and luxury that Banu Nadir had accumulated over centuries that they're loading onto their camels. Fine linen, fine garments, this precious metals and stones and this and that. Some of them even had very nice ornate doors that they didn't want to leave behind. So they took the doors off the hinges and loaded the doors on top of the camels. And the Muslims are seeing this as they leave the city in this manner. So one of the interesting narrations you find in the, at the end of the story is that out of Banu Nadir, after all is said and done, there were two or three people from them who decided to take shahada and become Muslim. They took shahada and they were allowed to stay. Just two or three. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed Surah Al-Hashar as a description of what took place during the Ghazwa of Banu Nadir. And it is mentioned, because if you go to some of the Masahif, you have, sometimes you have different names for chapters, right? Surah Al-Hashar, according to Ibn Abbas, is named Surah Banu Nadir. It is named after them. Now, Hashar can refer to the gathering of the Day of Judgment. But Hashar can also refer to a gathering of people in any context. According to Ibn Abbas, the name of the chapter is Surah Banu Nadir because the entire chapter is describing what happened during that battle and the internal state of Banu Nadir and their internal dissension and their ultimate consequences as well. So this happened in the fourth year of the Hijrah according to the soundest narration, Ar-Rabi'u al-Awwal is when it took place. And there's after effects to this, right? We have in the fifth year the incident with Banu Quraida, and we see the battle of Ahzab. All of these are consequences of these happenings in the community. So inshallah, next week, we'll talk about that as we go further into the fourth year of Hijrah. Uh, and we begin with a discussion on a very pivotal change that took place in the Muslim community. And that is when Allah Ta'ala revealed the verses prohibiting the consumption of alcohol. So we'll look at the history of that and the effects that had on the people. And as we go further into the fourth year leading into the fifth. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. They died off completely. I knew you were going to ask that question. I said, Taha's going to ask what happened to them. Uh, from, what, from what I know, they also moved north in the, in the area of Sham and were just exiled. That's all I know. Instead of...
Yeah. He left based on the angel Jibreel alayhi salam telling him to leave. And the Sahaba were standing there. And we presume they were out of danger. And they weren't actually the, the targets either. Yes, there was attempts to attack some of the Muslims from Ahl al-Sufa. But primarily they wanted to assassinate him. And that's why when he left, they were a bit upset. They said, why, why did he leave? We're ready to honor him with a banquet. Oh no, this is so unfortunate. We still have to iron out the agreement. That's who they wanted. They didn't really want the other Sahaba. So they, felt, they found that as a target of opportunity for them, him being positioned that close to the wall. When he was gone, they didn't think to take the others and kill them because who they really wanted, of course, was Rasulullah Yeah. Not that I know of. Not that I know of. I think that is a, that's a good question. Um, why was Banu Nadir approached to the exclusion of Banu Qurayla? I don't know. We could look at it from a financial perspective, but all of the Jewish tribes were signatories, all three of them. So I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Shaitan of the ins. Yeah, another thing you find uh, in this account of the Munafiqun is how much they use emphasis in their lies. See, people who don't lie, they usually don't have a reason to be so emphatic with what they're saying. They usually don't have a reason to say, Wallahi, I swear to God, you know, this, that, you know, and all these different forms of emphasis, because they tell the truth. So, yeah, I'll do this, or yes, this happened, or no, that didn't happen. But because the munafiqun are liars, they have to use forms of emphasis because people otherwise wouldn't believe them. They would be in doubt about what they say. And you see that with the liars. They use all sorts of form, all sorts of tawqidat, uh, forms of emphasis, because they have to in order for people to believe what they're saying is really true. And you, you see that here. You see that mentioned in Surah Munafiqun where they said, uh, uh, we bear witness. So bearing witness, that's a form of emphasis. Uh, that indeed, indeed is an emphasis. You are certainly the messenger of Allah. All right, so three forms of emphasis. How does Allah re respond to their lie? Allah knows that you are indeed his messenger. And Allah bears witness that indeed the hypocrites are certainly liars. Okay, so he they mentioned three forms of tawqid. He responds with three forms of tawqid. Right? So you see that here too. 
Yeah, they say they say al-hilfu silahul munafiq. Of course, that's not an absolute, but when the person is frequently swearing, this is uh, not good. But we always discourage uh, our young people from getting too used to saying wallahi all the time. You know, they're always saying it. Wallahi, I gave you two chips. Wallahi, you said you give me one cookie. Wallahi, I said, wallahi for the smallest things. They should, get, they should not do that. Uh, they should only use wallahi in the direst of situations where it has real impact. Because when they say wallahi all the time, they may be telling the truth, but they get so used to saying wallahi, it comes out of their tongue for every other th- statement. It is to be feared that they may slip and say wallahi to something that isn't entirely true. And maybe when they said wallahi, they didn't intend to swear by Allah and telling a lie. But their tongue is so used to saying wallahi that it just comes with the false statement. So should discourage that as a, as a rule for young people and adults. Yeah. Yeah, there's a discussion about the ijtihad of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Alaihi the strongest view of the usulis is that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi does not err in ijtihad, meaning something that is not uh, the product of direct revelation, where he is given discretion to do something or not do something. I haven't come across any discussion that it was from the ijtihad. What, I, what you do find is that this verse mentioning the cutting of the date palm trees is used to establish the authority of the sunnah as a form of uh, revelation and legislation. That there is a form of legislation that comes uh, outside of the Qur'an in the form of the Prophet's actions, statements, and approvals. And uh, the shahid of the verse is that the verse mentions the cutting of the date palms being by the even the permission of Allah, and so they were cut down. But outside of that verse, there is no other verse which mentions that permission. So there's no other verse which says you are permitted to cut the date palm trees. The question, therefore, is from whence did this permission come? It didn't come from the Qur'an. Because that verse is revealed after it happened. The permission came from wahi of another form. And we call that the sunnah. And the, the revelation of Allah Ta'ala to the Prophet Sallallahu either commanding him to do something or giving him the option to do something. And here it says, by the permission of Allah. So he could have left them or he could have cut them. He made a decision to cut them. So it's not a question of ijtihad like that. Because with those kinds of ijtihad, the person... I don't want to say ijtihad of the Prophet but ijtihad in general. You could say there's a musib and mukhti, there's a person right and wrong. And the person who's right gets two rewards, the one who's wrong gets uh, one reward. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. Because it came with explicit permission. So whether he left them or cut them is with the permission of Allah. There's no error whatsoever. So we wouldn't say ijtihad like that. It's wahi. 
واحد yeah. The hadith Qudsi is similar The dreams are from Abu Wahi as well uh, The ulama mentioned 10 forms of Wahi uh, 10 forms here meaning 10 uh, 10 vehicles if you will by which the revelation of Allah descends into the heart of the Prophet whether that is Qur'an or Sunnah, whether it comes with a wasita of Jibreel or otherwise, whether it comes through a dream or otherwise. But at the end of the day, a wahi, no matter what form it takes, is the revelation of Allah Ta'ala where something that is, uh, rationally speaking, something that is nadari becomes Dharuri, right? So one plus one equals two. Right? That's ilm daruri. That's necessary knowledge. It is self-evident. One plus one minus one plus seven divided by three. I don't even know the answer to that without a calculator. I need to get it out or write it down. But what it, that that answer is going to be nadari. Meaning it's not self-evident. You have to have some thought. Some will be quicker than others, depending on how good they are at math. But it's still nadari because you have to think about it. And you have to have some ta'amul and tafakkur. So, revelation is knowledge from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast into the heart of the Prophet wasallam that is that becomes daruri where the permission, for example, the permission to cut the date palms communicated via wahi is as self-evident a permission as one plus one equaling two. So that, that's how we understand wahi in general. The information that is conveyed in wahi, right? So for example, I'll give you a Really good one. We talked about math. One plus one equals two. Uh, one plus one plus two minus three divided by whatever. That's nadari, right? The verses of Quran that describe a state division, mirath, who gets what after someone dies. When you read those verses, to figure out who gets what, is that knowledge daruri or nadari is nadari in the sense that you got to think about it you got to figure out okay this person died he left behind this many relatives and male female so this is how we're going to divide the shares the wahi that conveys that so that knowledge that you apply is going to be nadari because you got to figure out who gets what but the the wahi itself Concerning a state division for the Prophet is daruri, right? Meaning, it is as clear as one plus one equals two. That's the distinction. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. 
you, you bring up a really good point because we see in the lead up to the battle of Uhud as well. The Prophet ﷺ preferred to stay in Medina, didn't he? Some of the Sahaba wanted to go out to Uhud, confront Quraysh directly. In some of these situations, the Prophet ﷺ, because to stay in Medina or to go to Uhud, neither involve anything sinful, right? Preference versus something else. And so in some of these situations, if they preferred to go somewhere else, because neither entailed sin, he would allow them. And then they see the consequences of that decision, right? This is uh, some... This is an example of some of the ways in which the Prophet ﷺ governed the community. It wasn't, as we say, with an iron fist for every single decision. Right? When they ask him at Badr, is this from, your, from Wahi or from Ijtihad? And he mentions Ijtihad. It's because going here or going there, you know, neither involve anything sinful. This was his decision. It wasn't based on a revelation given to him. Uh, so you see this also, you know, it's interesting, like we see this with, uh, throughout history and the way some of the Khulafa governed, where people who chose to follow them would follow them like that. And if they didn't want to, they would say, Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu anhu, that's what he did. You know, people who, you, wanna, you don't want to do that, okay, go to someone else. Sayyidina Hussein, Imam Hussein, same thing, right? So you see that kind of prophetic way of not trying to rule with an iron fist and micromanage every single detail. So there is that distinction between things that are clearly in wahi, permission, like this case, or matters that are open to judgment where there's no explicit wahi. And he may have a preference, but because neither involve sin or anything blameworthy, if they chose a different position, he would go along with it. And this is also raising up the generation of the Sahaba, uh, modeling for them the best way to govern. Shura, not micromanaging every single detail and ruling with an iron fist. That's not how he was. So you see these subtle indications in governing in the decisions he took uh, unilaterally in the ones that he uh, gave for them to choose between staying in Medina or going out. So it's all a beautiful model. Yeah. That's what why not blindly follow knowing that you can never go wrong if you choose the doctor. Yeah. Well, you understand the Sahaba themselves are of different tabaqat. There's different levels, right? And the decree of Allah Ta'ala unfolds in this way so that things happen in a certain way all based on these little decisions. And he's also modeling for the future generations the ideal way of governing and dealing with different people, right? Yeah, don't forget, and we're going to get to this quite soon. 
the in Medina is not just Sahaba like Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Uthman, Sayyidina Ali. You have different types of people with different levels of faith, different levels of commitment. Not to mention you have Munafiqun, and not to mention Arab and the Murjifun, and, and you know different types of people who have different levels of commitment and understanding. All of this is developing. The, the Quran is still being revealed. Things are still being unveiled. The society is still developing and maturing through these experiences. So we often look at the seerah, we, we look at the seerah in hindsight. Because here we are reading and studying the seerah 1445 years later. So we're looking back with hindsight is 2020. But things are unfolding in the moment. So things aren't always so clear in the moment as they are after they happen. So keep that in mind too. Wallahu a'lam.